Thanks for filling in, Tyler. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We are concluding our series learning about worship and what worship is. And Paul has some things to say to the Corinthians about worship. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting at verse 26. Paul writes, What should be done then, my friends, when you come together? Each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let them be silent in church and speak to themselves and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to someone else sitting nearby, let the first person be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is a God not of disorder, but of peace. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. I pray that you would speak to us this morning through me or despite me. In Jesus' name, amen. As we conclude our series on worship, we've talked about what is the essence, the, the heart of worship and what worship is. We talked about worship as uh, a sacrifice. In the Old Testament, that meant bringing animals, slaughtering animals, and it was a very messy affair, and that's what sacrifice looked like. In the New Testament, thankfully, it no longer involves the mass slaughtering of animals. I guess we've got hunters out that are going to be butchering and doing that stuff. Uh, that was never a part of my life a couple years ago. I decided I needed to experience that, so some friends were butchering their pigs, and I said, uh, hey, I'd like to come over and see what this is all about. I'm glad that uh, worship on Sunday mornings doesn't involve that anymore. Uh, I still eat meat, still eat pork, but, you know, I don't need to be doing that every week. Thankfully, our sacrifice now is bringing ourselves, bringing all we have and all we are as, as messed up as sometimes that is before God and laying it before God and say, God, here I am. I'm, I'm a broken mess. I confess that to you, but take all of who I am, take everything that you've put in me, and here it is. Use me for your kingdom. Last week, we talked about how worship is formative, how we come and as we spend time with Jesus and turning our eyes on Jesus, we are formed more and more to be like Christ. That transforms us. We see ourselves differently. We begin to see others differently. We love the people that God loves and we begin to have a new imagination for what we could be like and what our church could be like and what the world could be like. And then we go out to join God in what God is already doing in the world. Last week, I left us with the question, does our worship transform us? 
And if not, why? Uh, I was going through my emails the other week and I came across a, a blog post that I subscribe to. It's called the Jesus Creed blog. And uh, there's a number of different people that write for this blog. But one of the posts was, uh, caught my attention and it was called, Why is Worship Boring? Don't anybody start saying amen now. <laughs> you haven't been saying it all morning. It comes from uh, author Mike Glenn, who at the beginning of the blog post talks about his, his football team is the Alabama Crimson Tide. And he said, I can watch any other team and be perfectly rational about it. I can enjoy watching the game. But Crimson Tide comes on and all bets are off. That's me with Ohio State. Somebody put Advent uh, Bible School right in the middle of the Ohio State-Michigan game yesterday. I'll have a conversation with Missy later. Um, that's, that's my team, and I can watch anybody else and be perfectly rational. But Ohio State plays, and forget it. I'm cheering, and I'm standing up, and I get upset, and my brothers and I are texting through the game. And so yesterday I had my phone in my pocket, and I just feel bzz, bzz, bzz. <laughs> Like, what is going on? We all get passionate about something. Katie says, it's just a game. It's just a game. And I said, no, it's not just a game. Uh, you don't know what's at stake. And that's what Glenn says. He says, we all say, you don't know what's at stake. And for too many of us, when we come to worship, there's nothing at stake. There's nothing at stake. Glenn says, practically speaking, each of us is responsible for our own worship. We are responsible for getting our hearts and our minds focused for true worship. We're responsible to bring an acceptable offering to be ready to confess our sins and respond in worship to the moment when God reveals himself. We should bring testimonies to be shared, burdens to be laid down. Worship should matter. Worship should be something we can't wait to get to because we come away, our lives will be different. Worship should matter. And here's the real issue for most of us. For most people, there's nothing at stake during a worship service. Sunday is nothing more than the day before Monday. He writes, no, you don't have to worship on Sunday. Yes, you can worship anytime, anywhere. But when worship matters, when something is at stake, you have to be with God's people. There are moments so big you can't praise God loudly enough all by yourself. You'll find yourself almost willing to stand up in the congregation and shout, sing with me, see what the Lord has done. But sometimes the burden is so great, you need brothers and sisters to sing for you. You hurt so deeply, other people have to cry for you. There are times when life hits you so hard, you can't even believe by yourself. You'll need the congregation to believe for you. Worship leaders can bring you the songs to express your worship. The liturgy can bring you a form to guide your worship. But we can't bring you worship. Worship is a response to an encounter with the living God. Anything else and you're just going through the motions. In worshiping together, when we come on Sunday morning to worship together, there's, there's interesting dynamics at play. 
Each Sunday, there's between about 120 and 160 individuals between two services that come to Spring Creek to worship, all with different preferences, different interests, stages of faith, pet peeves, spiritual gifts, baggage from the week. And many of us know exactly how we as individuals worship best. One of the questions I asked some people in preparing for this series was, what part of worship connects with you best? And we all know what part grabs our attention. We also know what part doesn't grab our attention. Paul has some things to say to us about worship in 1 Corinthians 14. Paul's letter that we call 1 Corinthians was written to a very divided group, a group that was arguing about a whole lot of things. They were arguing about over what teacher was the best, uh, what leader was the best. They were arguing about what kind of food and drink to consume. And among other things they were arguing about, they were arguing about worship. So they were a real church. Chapter 14 is largely a discussion about using the gifts of tongues, speaking in tongues, and the gifts of prophecy in worship service. Speaking in tongues was speaking a heavenly language um, or a foreign language that wasn't known to the person speaking it. It was a movement of the spirit that allowed them to speak that language. We see that uh, especially at Pentecost when the disciples are sitting in the room and, and the Holy Spirit fills their lives and, and just surrounds them and they go out into the streets of Jerusalem and they're all preaching and they're speaking in languages that all of the out-of-towners come and they're hearing the, the good news of Jesus proclaimed in their own language. And, and you know, thousands of people respond. Prophecy here, when we're talking about prophecy, we're not just talking about future-telling. Uh, prophecy in the Bible is more often about truth-telling, telling the bold truth, proclaiming the truth to the people of God. And sometimes, often with the prophets, that truth hurts. And that truth is hard for us to hear. So there's these two parts of worship that Paul's talking about. Paul doesn't seem to have an issue with people speaking in tongues. But what Paul wants is for their worship together that it builds up the body. This phrase, builds up, appears some seven times in chapter 14. And literally, it means to build up the house. Paul wants their worship to build up the house, God's house, to build up the body of Christ. He doesn't want them arguing about worship. There's a difference between individual worship and corporate worship, and Paul talks a little bit about that. <clears throat> he doesn't negate speaking in tongues, but in corporate worship, he wants people to understand what's being said. He wants that gift to benefit everyone. He wants worship to build up. The, the NIV uses the word edify the church. There are other ways of worshiping that work better in private than they do when we gather together. Meditation probably works better uh, when you're by yourself than it does with a bunch of us rummaging through stuff or coughing or kids rooching around, rooching. You all know what rooching means? <laughs> I, all right. That's a Pennsylvania Dutch word, uh, rooch, yeah. Uh, kids rooching around. 
Meditating is probably kind of hard for us all to do together. Another way that a lot of people engage in worship is by taking a walk through the woods and just taking in God's beauty and creation. That's maybe something better done as an individual or a small group rather than trying to take all of us on a Sunday morning and traipse off through the woods. Some of us would not experience that as worship. That might be something that's better left for you as an individual or a small group. Paul believes that when believers come together for worship, the parts of that service should build the unity of the body. If you look at verse 26, Paul writes, What should be done then, my friends, when you come together? Each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. We see here different elements of worship involved, but it should be done to build up the body. It's interesting that it seems like a lot of people are involved in this worship. And it's interesting that there's no printed bulletin for them to follow. There's not even an evident leader of that worship. We don't see that. Paul doesn't really talk about that. I don't know that that's prescriptive for us, that that's something that we have to do, that that should be the way we continue to worship. Uh, but it's interesting that so many people are involved. See, worship for them was an act that believers participated in, not just something they came and observed. It wasn't just about Paul or Apollos getting up and everybody watch what Paul and Apollos does. They were all involved in the worship. It was something you, I, worship was something you uh, heard, it was something you smelled, it was something you tasted, it was an act, it was something you did, you were involved in it. In verses 27 and 28, it says, If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let them be silent in church and speak to themselves and to God. We see you know, this didn't always work in the public worship. Paul doesn't want worship to become about a one-person show with one person speaking in tongues and everybody else going, all right, I guess we'll wait for uh, Susie to do her piece and then the rest of us can get back to worship. In verses 29 through 32, again we see Paul speaking about the participation of different people in leading worship. But in verse 33, Paul kind of gets to the heart of it. He says, for God is a God not of disorder, but of peace. It seems that Paul suggests that the nature of their worship should reflect the nature of God. God is not a God of disorder. In fact, the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He brings order from chaos. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And our worship should reflect that. Richard Hayes, in his commentary on this section, says, this is one more hint that the problems in Corinthian worship are not merely the result of overheated spirituality. It's not just because they're so on fire for God that they just can't get it all together. 
they're also linked to the factionalism, all the, the division they had in their church and their defiance of Paul's authority that have been the consistent concern of this letter. If, however, God is a God of peace, the Corinthians should learn to be at peace with one another and to express that peace in a style of worship that emphasizes concord and complementarity. It means they're supposed to work together. Their worship should reflect the God of peace that they're coming to worship. They should be working with one another. The divisiveness of the church in Corinth was creeping over into their worship. Hayes then continues, the overriding concern of this chapter is that the members of the church worship collaboratively. It means they work together in a way that builds up the community through the participation of each member. Worship, Paul insists, is not just a time for private spiritual blessing. It is a time for the members of the community to share with each other God's gifts so that all may learn and be encouraged. For many congregations, this understanding of the purpose of worship would constitute a revolution of consciousness, or as we have been saying, a conversion of the imagination. Hayes, this is Hayes writing, he must, we must ask ourselves how our present styles of meeting and worship actually serve the end of building community. Few churches can read 1 Corinthians 14 seriously without finding themselves invited to worship more, I'm sorry, without finding themselves invited to discover more broadly participatory styles of worship. As I've been thinking about our worship, worship in general, worship here at Spring Creek, I think this passage has a couple of things for us to hear. And we see in this passage two different sides of worshiping together that sometimes are in conflict with one another in the church. And the title of the sermon is Orderliness and Openness. First of all, we see orderliness. Paul doesn't want worship to look like this free-for-all, chaotic mess happening. He says, God is a God not of disorder but of peace. Your worship shouldn't just be haphazard, whatever, willy-nilly, all over the place. It should bring peace to the body. It should build up the body. But we also see here an openness to the Spirit. Because the people are open to speaking in tongues or, or to an interpretation or to prophecy. They're open to the movement of the Spirit there with them in that place. Openness to the Spirit may come through carefully, prayerfully prepared order of worship that helps a congregation focus on Jesus. But that openness to the Spirit may come in a willingness to go where the Spirit leads within a service. Some of us prefer the order, and some of us prefer the openness. Both can be worship. Both can become stale. Both can be beautiful and creative and imaginative. And both can become a show focused on a person rather than a focus on Jesus. Does our worship seek to build up the body? 
Does our worship reflect a God of peace? Does our fellowship with one another reflect a God of peace? Does our serving one another and our serving with one another reflect a God of peace? As we've talked about worship, we've just been touching a part of what is involved in worship. We could have a much longer discussion about music and and prayer and and reading scripture and meditating and, and all of these different ways of worshiping and how they direct our hearts to focus on God. We could also talk about how our everyday life is an opportunity for worship. How uh, going to work, being with coworkers, uh, serving in the community, running kids to soccer practice, uh, doing all these different things, how there are opportunities throughout our days to worship. For me, it happens when, most often, when I'm in the car. The radio goes off, and I'm just there open to what God might be putting in my mind at that time, maybe praying. It might be turning on a a podcast of someone. Even pastors need to be preached to every once in a while. So uh, there's a couple people that I turn on and let preach at me. There's opportunities in everyday life that can be acts of worship. But we've started to look at what is at the heart of worship. And what is at the heart of worship is an interaction with a holy God and our response to who God is and what God is doing in the world, that is our worship. It's us bringing ourselves and laying our lives, our agendas, our brokenness before God. It's allowing that interaction to transform who we are that as we spend time focusing on Jesus we become formed into the image of Christ. And this kind of worship matters immensely. There is something at stake every week. As we're formed more and more into the likeness of Christ, we begin to see things the way God sees them and to love people the way God loves them and to begin to partner with God in what God is doing in the world. And if we don't worship, if we aren't coming together and being conformed to the image of Christ, then are we ever going to be to look like Jesus? Our worship needs to build up the community. It needs to reflect the God of peace we come to worship week in and week out. As we worship, as we have fellowship, as we serve with one another. Let that build up the body of Christ. Let it build our unity. Let it proclaim a God of peace, even as we do those things. Amen.